I'm Randy. And I'm Claire. And you're listening to Killer Vibes. A true crime podcast. Okay, are you ready for my story? Yes, always. This is the story of the hurricane. The man the authorities came to blame. Oh my gosh, that was great. You know, you know the story of the hurricane? No. Okay, I will tell you. Okay. (laughs) So this is the story of Reuben Hurricane Carter. Okay. Who is the basis for the song Hurricane by Bob Dylan, which I was just singing. We had a beautiful sample. I will not sing more than that because I'm not a good singer. Yeah, no, that's fair. You're a fine singer. I don't know what you're talking about. Thank you. You sound just like Bob Dylan. Well, he's not a good singer, so honestly, I take that back. Not a high bar. (laughs) So you sound slightly better than Bob Dylan. (laughs) Great. So that's good. At least you're at that level. Would you like me to sing the eight minute song to you? No. No, I'm okay. okay. I was good with that snippet. That okay. was good. Classy. Well, I'm going to go into some details slightly more than Bob Dylan did in his song, mm-hmm. although that song is extensive. It is Quite. eight minutes. That's a long time for a song. It's a long song. That's and almost I, and Bohemian. I love that song. How long is Bohemian Rhapsody? Because that one was also I don't know. Really I don't long. like that song. I find that song to be fun and enjoyable. But we could compare it to, like, Stairway to Heaven. That's a long song. That's also true. I feel like every rock group has to at least have one really long song. They have to have a very long song. Oh, my God. Speaking of long songs. So (laughs) I saw Dead and Company this weekend. Yes. Oh, my God. I was going to ask you about that. Literally, like, 20-minute songs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. It was so funny. It's one of those, like, weird fan-based groups. You know what I mean? Like, the... The fans are what drives all the stuff. Oh, yeah. Total Deadheads. Yeah. Like, they have a name. Deadheads. fans. Yeah. <laughs> and everything's commodified. It's a whole thing. Mm hmm. There's t shirts. There's literally everything. Yeah. <laughs> you could buy all the merch. There were like thousands of people. There was so much fun. But yeah, there are songs. They, they were taking songs that on their albums are like two minutes and then they were like 20 minutes. <laughs> Goodness. I know. It was really long. But yeah, the concert was like literally three plus hours it was so long nice but it was fun though right it was so much fun I, they've been like on my bucket list to see so mm-hmm. I was like check finally <laughs> saw checked. them it was almost like a chore you know like, yeah because they come to Colorado a lot mm-hmm. and I never have money to get tickets and I'm like right crap I have to remember the next time they <laughs> yeah, come like, damn it <laughs> but yeah okay at least you've got it done now and I know I do I, you don't really have to do it again but you could do it again. I could if do you it again. To. But it's not like I absolutely have, have to. to. Like I've had the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's that. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so welcome to our podcast about music. And now welcome music to our podcast. Music and murder. Music and murder. Oh, that'd be cool. I was just <gasps> thinking that. Oh my God. Because there's actually a lot of different songs that are related of, back are. to serial killers. Like you're one of your favorite songs, the Hurley Burley Man. That isn't <laughs> thing. What is that song called? It's called Hurdy Gurdy. Hurdy Gurdy. And it is not about a serial killer. It is just it about... in the film uh, Zodiac. <laughs> I thought it was about the Zodiac killer. It is just the song that plays as the credits roll. <laughs> this is what I know about music. That's it. That's all I know. <laughs> you know I about music. The... You know a lot about show tunes. I do. I'm a big show tunes fan. Yes. I what I we listen to Phantom com- of the Opera for fun. It's my favorite thing to do. Our sen- our music tastes are so funny because yes. they're so different, <laughs> and sometimes they overlap. They overlap in really weird places. Yeah, like Mean Girls. Yes, like we both love the Mean we Girls. We lo- love Mean Girls. We like. I mean, you you danced to some Moulin Rouge songs. And I danced. I, yeah, I enjoy Moulin Rouge. I only danced quite a lot. to Moulin Rouge. <laughs> oh, there, you just go. that song. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
those are the two overlaps. Music and murder. Okay, next yes. podcast. <laughs> next idea. Next idea. Okay. Put that away. Nobody take that. That's ours. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, so let me tell you the story of the wrongfully convicted Reuben Carter. Ooh, our favorite. I will first tell you just a little background on him. So mm-hmm. Reuben was born on May 6th in 1937 in Clifton, New Jersey, and he grew up in the nearby town of Patterson, which you would know from the song if you've heard it. Um, uh, oh, cool. Okay. His father worked in a rubber factory and operated an ice delivery service in the mornings. And when Reuben was only eight years old, his father put him to work cutting and delivering ice at, Ooh. at eight, which is weird. That's always weird to think about, like, how different it was when you started work back then. I feel like Just that as... was not normal, actually. When was, Sorry. When was he born? <laughs> 1937. I, I don't think eight years old is ever a normal age to start working all the time. Right. And the child labor laws had already been passed by this point because it was the late 1800s. That would start to see the reforms. There. Well, his father owned the ice delivery service. Oh, so, so he just made his kid yeah. work at his business? Yes. Okay, that's rude. <laughs> I was like, I feel like you're not picking up on the no, rudeness. No, I got that. Yeah. Now I'm officially <laughs> angry. Okay, good. So <laughs> when <laughs> Reuben was nine, he stole some clothes from a store in Patterson because he's a a working kid, he's stressed yeah. out. Like he's probably gonna be a little rebellious. His dad's apparently super strict. Yeah, free freaking labor. Is yeah. it his dad not paying him? Probably. I don't know what how you pay an eight year old. Yeah, it's like here's a quarter. Go like get I a don't gumball. Like don't do you, really. Know. I don't know. So he stole clothes like with a couple of his friends from school, and his own father turned him into the police when he was nine years old. Yikes! Which. In most places, that's not even old enough to be tried in juvenile court. Some places right. have a minimum age of 10. So yeah, that totally sucks. It's a little bizarre to think that this happened, but he was placed on probation for two years at the age of nine. And I don't really know what nine-year-old probation entails, but... Yeah, like, you can't go to that particular playground. I mean, like, uh, yeah, what I don't the know, heck? I don't know what it means, but... That happened. Interesting. And when he was 12, he was arrested because he attacked a man with his Boy Scout knife. But he said that the man was making sexual advances at he and his friend and that the stabbing was a self-defense thing. But nonetheless, he was sentenced to six years at the Jamesburg State Home for Boys but then, I hate homes for boys. They're not good. <laughs> Schools for boys, homes See for boys. See our Dozier School for Boys episode. Not my favorite thing. Um, But apparently he was getting abused by the guards there, which obviously all school for schools for boys. That's why I don't like them. Just kidding. Not all. I hate but, this. Okay. I mean, it comes up a lot. I just want to give him a hug. And I also want to adopt him. I know. Like, I don't even, I am not prepared for children, but I want this kid to come and know, live like, in my house. Really bad things are happening to him, and it seems like it's not his fault. Yes. So he escapes this state home for boys because, duh, he's getting abused. Mm-hmm. And if you have the chance, you should escape. Yes. And he went to his aunt's home in Philadelphia. And then in 1954, he joined the army, but he told them that he was just from Philadelphia. He grew up with his aunt, so they had no reason to look into his background, right. whereas if they did, they would have learned he was a fugitive, but of they course. didn't look into it, so they let him into the army. And Neat. 
This is still when the army was segregated. So he served in the segregated corps. And then there he began training as a boxer. So Ruben was like, instantly good at boxing like a total natural and he was able to get some training in the army too to give him the technique he needed as well Mm -hmm. and overseas in europe he won 51 fights 35 by knockouts so not just like we have to like the judges vote who wins but by right by like literally knocking out his opponent yes i don't know a lot about boxing me neither but i assume (laughs) that's what a knockout means i mean i've seen creed I've seen Rocky. I've seen Rocky too. I don't know. I said, didn't I've say seen that first. I the saw the fourth one with the Russian. I've definitely seen all of them as a child, but I've more recently seen Creed because that guy's hot. Sorry. <laughs> He's so hot. Don't apologize. That's fair. Um, yeah, no. I think, I mean, I can assume that knockout means you. I think knock it's the thing where you knock opponent. them out and then they're like, one. Two, or they're like, three. four, three, two, yep, or however whatever. many seconds. How many? Is, is it eight seconds? That seems no, like that's bull riding. That's bull riding. <laughs> we are so into sports. If you couldn't tell, oh my gosh, we know we just have a vast understanding of the athletic institutions, <laughs> such as boxing and bull riding <laughs> and football. Which Randy's named after a football player, so obviously I am. <laughs> she so knows I should so know much. everything about I it. Know. Yep, well-versed. Whoops. Eight seconds, I'm a rebel. Seconds, you name whatever. me after a football player, I'm going to do the exact opposite yeah. and make it my goal to know nothing about nothing it. Nothing about football. That's, Except O.J. Yeah. Simpson, whom I know a lot about. Yeah, but, like, only about O.J. Simpson. <laughs> and, like, he was a football player is, like, a fact. Not really, like, a... <laughs> it's not really important to the overall O.J. story. Yeah, that's true. He that's just true. was one of those. Just, and then the good stuff happens just afterwards. Just an occupation. <laughs> yeah. It was just his job. <laughs> Whatever. It wasn't like he was good. <laughs> he was very good, apparently. Heisman Trophy yeah. winner. I know that yes. happened. Yeah. One of the kids who went to my uh, high school, Valor Christian, almost was up for a Heisman really? Trophy. Yeah. Christian McCaffrey. That's cool. Someone who went to the high school in the town that I didn't go to high school in but lived in was a Heisman Trophy winner. And his name so exciting. is on our water tower. Oh, yeah. You've told me about this. <laughs> That's a thing we do. And Put Oklahoma. names on water towers. We do. Toby Keith's name yeah. on a water tower. Garth Brooks' name's on a water water tower. And one day, Randy Maddox is going to be on a water tower. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And they're going to be like, who is he? <laughs> <laughs> yes. My ultimate demise. Boy name. You know what? It's a conversation starter. It is. It's good. It's good. Oh, I thought you were going to be a guy when you show up to your meeting. Yes. That's what it's going to be. That always happens. Yep. It's really, it's entertaining. Okay, so <laughs> he won 51 fights, and he only lost five, and he won two European championships. That's so a lot. I don't know if he was doing much army stuff over there, but he was yeah, no. doing some boxing. Kicking ass in boxing. I don't know about the military stuff. Yeah. Well, I know that he was honorably discharged in 56, so he only served for two years. So Do we know why he was discharged? I think he was just done. It says he was honorably discharged, so I think he was just, like, done with it. It's like, I'm over this. And then he returned to Patterson, where he grew up, and he took a job driving a tractor trailer while he continued training and boxing with the ultimate goal of going pro. So, while this is happening, the authorities 
realize he's back in Patterson, track him down and arrest him and make him finish the remaining 10 months of his sentence at the Annandale Reformatory for Youthful Offenders before he continue his, could continue his boxing career. So, so okay, sorry. No, you, you, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. Well, so there's an institution for adult males that didn't complete their... I think that's what this is. Okay. I just needed clarity on that. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. So when he was released, he unfortunately reoffended rather quickly. This time he was arrested for purse snatching and was sentenced to four years at a maximum security prison called Trenton State, which what? seems pretty extreme for purse snatching. Yes, that seems ridiculous for purse snatching. I mean, racism. Yep. That's all I have to say. So once he completed that sentence, um, Ruben channeled all of this anger into his boxing, and he turned pro in 1961. So he fought his first professional fight the day after he was released from prison, and he's quoted as saying, I was in my element now. Fighting was the pulse beat of my heart, and I loved it. Oh, passion. I know. And that seems like the great, like a really great career for somebody who has obviously a lot of anger from their childhood and being treated right. unfairly. And absolutely, I mean, why not do something like boxing? Yeah, it's a good outlet, and plus, it's like in a controlled environment, so you can still have these outbursts of anger, but you're not doing it on someone on the street or something like that. Yeah, you know, like it's a good place to let everything go, like you were saying. So yeah. Yeah, I like this. This is good. If you're angry, maybe take up boxing. Yeah. Don't do it fight club style, though. Please. M- maybe. That sounds kind of fun. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> David Fincher made it look fun. He did. I will say that. But it's only angry white men, and I just don't want to. That's true. I'm just saying. Just be safe out there, guys. So... <laughs> So Ruben was instantly successful as a professional, and in December of 1963, he knocked out the welterweight champion, Emil Griffith, which I learned this, is the weight class between middleweight and whatever's under middleweight. Lightweight? <laughs> no, they wouldn't call it that. I think that's <laughs> when you get drunk quickly. <laughs> yes, I know that. <laughs> um, <laughs> lower weight? Intermediate weight? Small? Small. Just small. That's mean. I feel like they, like, you're small. You're in the small weight class. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but this is the one in between those two. My friend Peyton is going to be so mad at me. He's a boxer, and (laughs) I don't know any of this. It's okay. You don't have to know everything about it. Yeah, right. I'm so sorry, sir. If he gets mad at you, just be like, do you know everything about murder? Yeah, it's like, so come at me, bro. (laughs) (laughs) So he wins this fight, which is pretty a pretty big deal for someone who's only been professional for three years at this two years at this point actually Mm -hmm. and then he goes on to fight the middleweight champion and he barely loses this fight like it came down to a vote from the judges and he was fighting the guy in the guy's hometown so it was kind of like he was probably gonna lose if it came down to a vote but he was super close to winning and he was becoming a top contender for the middleweight world championship and earned the nickname Hurricane. Cool. Which makes sense with the lyric, here comes a... St- no, I'm not going to sing it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, although he was incredibly popular in the boxing world, his fame did not exclude him from racism. 
An LA Times article puts it perfectly, I think. They say, With his fearsome drop-dead glare, precisely cut goatee, and glistening shaved head, Carter was violent and swaggering, a white racist caricature of a dangerous black man. So put perfectly, basically just saying he was this image that white people were, were able to be like, ah, a scary black man and just yeah, run with it. Absolutely. And then in 1964, the police started harassing Ruben because he had a controversial interview in the Saturday Evening Post that may or may not have happened. So okay. <laughs> there were quotes attributed to Ruben that expressed black militant views, such as shooting at the police if you felt threatened by them, just very violent Malcolm X style kind of things okay. that were probably, as they were with Malcolm X, taken out of context. Of course. Ruben claims he was misquoted, but even if the quotes were never printed, I think he would likely still be a target for racist police in Patterson because he had this criminal background as a juvenile and he was a boxer and he was a prominent person in Patterson to go after. So I don't think even I think that even if those quotes, if he said them or not, he still probably would have ended up in this position because of who he was. Right. And because of the time. Mm hmm. It, the time still happening today. Yeah. <laughs> so the harassment took multiple forms. Once when he his car was broken down, he was arrested, but they didn't charge him with anything. So basically what they did was they took him into a holding cell and held him there as long as they legally were allowed to without charging him. And then when it came time to charge him or let him go, they had to let him go because it was a bogus arrest. So it was yeah. just taking up his time scaring him for no reason basically like asserting power just hello we are allowed to arrest you and hold you for like however long whatever 48 hours or however long that time is just being annoying and then on another occasion they unlawfully fingerprinted and photographed him and made a file with his information which was i think another kind of scare tactic of look we have your information we can totally get you whenever we want to like Mm -hmm. You're, we kind of we own you kind of thing. Yeah, like don't try anything at all because now you're in our system and mm-hmm. we have all your information. And we will find you and we're like looking for you. And then the good old paranoid FBI of the 1960s <laughs> opened a file on Ruben and started tracking him for seemingly no reason For at just all. being a human being, being Which a black human was being. was not uncommon for the FBI at the time, unfortunately. Gross. So all of this ignorance and corruption and racism comes to fruition on June 17th, 1966. So while Ruben's wife and baby were asleep, he decided to go out to the bars that night. He went to a couple local spots around town, and then he eventually met up with an acquaintance of his named John Artis. They were friends, but they didn't hang out all the time, but they ran into each other at this bar and he agreed to give Reuben a ride home because Reuben had been drinking and it was just like a casual kind of thing. So that's Reuben's night. Two other important things happened this night in Patterson. And although they are totally unrelated to Reuben, they happened in close proximity to where he was hanging out. And that would be just an awful coincidence for him. So the first thing that happened a black tavern owner was shot by a white guy who formerly owned that same tavern. Tavern, 
<laughs> Sorry, I'm a little <laughs> sick and like I can't talk. Um, we just paused and talked about <laughs> talked How about sick being she sick was. for yes. like 30 minutes. <laughs> so that happens on this night, and then. There is another shooting at another tavern in Patterson on this same exact night. So it happens a little bit later than the one where the black tavern owner was shot. And it is at a tavern called the Lafayette Bar and Grill. And there were two black men came in to the bar and they murdered two white men and one white woman who were in there. So a triple homicide occurs. Scary. So... Presumably, the police think that the murders at the second tavern were in retaliation to the murder at the first tavern, and that it was all related to race and territorialism and just, you know, like, the white guy shot the black tavern owner, and then some black guys got upset about that and shot some white people in a tavern. Like, that's what they think happened without knowing if any of them even knew each other or anything like that. But that's what they, they kind of make this race retaliation theory up instantly and that doesn't make a lot of sense right away uh no so the first murder was kind of a one and done like closed case kind of thing because they figure out instantly that it was the guy who former formerly owned the tavern who shot the guy but when the police arrived to the second tavern the only information they got was that the shooters were two black men in a white car They got this information from the only guy in the tavern who survived the shooting, and he was badly injured. One of his eyes was badly injured, so his vision wasn't great. My God. But he was able to give that, you know, vague description of, I saw two black men, and then they drove away in a white car. But that's all he could say. And he was pretty upfront about, that's as much as I know. I don't want to give more details because I don't, I didn't see any more details. Which is, I like when an eyewitness mm-hmm. is honest about what they see. Like, like, I got shot during this. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't give you much more than what I have. Yes. So <laughs> love an honest person. Yeah. It's better to be vague and be truthful than to like try and come up with better uh, details that you may or may not have accurately seen. Yeah. And the the studies surrounding eyewitness testimony are so heavily proving that they are not reliable that yeah. it's just like unless someone instantly says something like a second after it happens it's almost like unbelievable yes I, like that's what studies have shown us yeah memory is not a science it's it's and you will not fill in perfect. blanks subconsciously like, yeah like your brain is such a complicated organ that you will like assume things that didn't actually happen and it's not your fault for assuming those things but it just occurs yeah which makes it illogical to say that it's like this perfect eyewitness testimony that's you know breaking cases and stuff like that it's not and if we know that it occurs which we do know that it occurs because we have study after study telling us that it occurs yeah why are why is that still testimony that's allowed that's so bizarre i don't know let's stop doing that (laughs) Yeah, that's what I say a lot about a lot of the pseudosciences that have existed in the past. Okay. <laughs> so, of course, Reuben and his friend John, who is giving him a ride home, are two black men in a white Dodge sedan. No. And they were only half a mile away from the Lafayette Bar and Grill. Oh, this is giving my heart palpitations. Yes. So <laughs> a lucky day for the racist cops in Patterson who had been looking for any reason to put Reuben away. They were 
basically presented with like a perfect opportunity. Yeah. So that night, both Ruben and John passed polygraph tests saying that they weren't at the Lafayette Bar and Grill. They didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. This pisses the police off because they're like trying to get them for this murder. So they bring John and Ruben to the hospital where the eyewitness is getting fixed up because he's barely surviving. And they allow him to identify Ruben and John, which is not how you do any sort sort of of lineup situation at all. And there are rules around that now. So don't worry. This doesn't happen this way anymore. But they just bring him in and they're like, hey, are these the two guys that shot you? And luckily... Oh, my God. Luckily. I was, I, was gonna, I was waiting for you to say something horrible. Okay, okay. No, remember, this is our very trustworthy yes, eye, I'm, eyewitness. I'm putting my faith in this person, and I really hope it pans out for me. Yes. He says, yeah, that's not them. Thank you. That's just two black guys. Like, that's not the same black guys. It's like, just because you have two black guys doesn't mean that they're the same two black guys. Excuse me. Yeah, so he's like, yeah, no, that's not them, and I can barely see, and I still know it's not them. <laughs> like, so you can go. Yep. And they're like, take another look. Are you sure? Like, they're totally leading the guy to say that it's him. And he's like, no. No. It's not them. Oh, thank God. Who is this guy? He should win an award. I don't know who he is. He should win an award. Best eyewitness. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give it to him. I'll give him that award. So they let Ruben and John go because they don't have anything to hold them on. Other than the coincidence of them being two black men in a white car, which isn't really a coincidence. No. And that, you know, they think that it's over. There They're like, that was just an awful experience, like more harassment, but whatever, it's over. Yeah. So on August 6, 1966, in Rosario, Argentina, Ruben lost around to Rocky Rivero, and this would be the last fight he would ever fight because mm. two months later, he and John were formally charged with the triple homicide at the Lafayette Bar and Grill. What the fuck? On uh, no more evidence than what they had the night that they wanted to arrest them initially. So Ruben and John maintained their innocence because they obviously did literally nothing. Because they're innocent, but yeah. be in proximity to a murder. Great. Which I'm sure we all have been at some point. Oh my god, that's a that's a creepy thing to think about. <laughs> Ooh. I know I have, but oh, I'm from Oklahoma true. City. Yeah. <laughs> There's a murder all Every the time. Every day. <laughs> so, in 1967, it goes to trial. A joke of a trial, <laughs> and it's a pretty short story because the prosecution have nothing, and they present a super weak case. Mm-hmm. So they put two men on the stand. Alfred Bello and Arthur Bradley. So Bello and Bradley are burglars with long criminal records who were near the Lafayette Bar and Grill on the night of June 17th because they were attempting to burglarize a nearby factory. That is why they are there. The prosecution puts these two on the stand. These two gems of... Witnesses. Wow, I would be so trusting of the prosecution if they put no, these I'm not two saying, criminals on there. I'm not saying that a burglar is untrustworthy, is untrustworthy whatsoever. Considering the situation. Maybe a little. Maybe a little bit. Uh, maybe a little bit. <laughs> Especially when that's all you have. Yes. <laughs> so they put them on the stand and they provide eyewitness accounts that place the two men at the scene of the murder 
leaving in a white car and carrying guns. Are we sure these two burglars didn't commit these murders? Yes. We're okay. sure. We're pretty sure that it's two black men, just not these two black men. Okay. Because why would that our award-winning eyewitness lie about that, but then be yeah. truthful about it not being them? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I believe him. Yeah, I believe him, too. So, that's it. That's the prosecution's case. Wow, so thorough and thought out. Alfred Bello and Arthur Bradley, burglars. Burglars extraordinaire and key eyewitness testimony. Expert burglars. Expert burglars. No motive. No believable witnesses. Nada. And the person who literally got shot said that it wasn't them. Yeah, but they don't present that, obviously, because it doesn't help them. But, like, I'm just saying that as a caveat. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So... All the defense can really do is prove that John and Ruben weren't there that night. So they put three witnesses on the stand who provide alibis for the men, saying that they were at this other bar, that alibis of people people watching them run into each other and having a conversation and then leaving together and not driving towards the Lafayette Bar and Grill. So mm-hmm. basically it's like a he said, she said kind of thing. It's these two guys say they were there. These three people say they weren't. That's literally all the jury has. Yeah. So the jury, the all white jury, oh God, found Reuben and John guilty of first degree murder. I hate this country sometimes. And the all white jury agreed. It's from the song, too. <laughs> I was just going to say. Y'all should go listen to that song. <laughs> so Reuben got 30 to life and John got 15 to life. They both appealed to the New Jersey Supreme Court and were unanimously denied. Unanimously. Like, not even one person on that court thought that they should have a new trial. What the hell? So, in prison, John is basically a model prisoner because he doesn't have... I mean, he has a very long sentence considering, but, like, if he can just be good for, like, 15 years, you know, he could totally get out on parole. So, he's, like, model prisoner. Mm Mm-hmm. Reuben continued sticking it to the man in prison, which I love, but the prison staff did not. Obviously. (laughs) And he constantly defied the guards. He refused to wear his uniform. He maintained his innocence. And he basically just sat in his cell all day and read and, like, wrote and did research and didn't communicate with any of his fellow inmates, like, didn't, wasn't about the community or anything, Mm -hmm. was just, like, a total recluse kind of situation which they don't want you to do they want you to be like like if you were to go to a parole hearing you would want to say like look at these positive relationships I built oh I was on the the kitchen staff or whatever you know I made crowbars he (laughs) don't they do that isn't that like a stupid cliche of like I have no prisoners make crowbars and license plates I don't know (laughs) I don't think that happens yeah I feel like I've seen that in a movie once (laughs) (laughs) I was like where'd you come up with that It was probably an animated show of, like, them pressing down. I don't even fucking know. Maybe he was doing that. Maybe I don't he was. I, don't know. I have no idea. The story is full of twists and turns. So, so many. wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, right? He made license plates. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, so I don't want to say you're wrong, but I've never personally like, heard of that. I don't know. So... During all this time that he's spending in his cell being assumably, like, 
you know, doesn't want anything to do with anybody kind of attitude, he's actually being really productive writing an autobiography. Ooh. I know. So in 1974, his book titled The 16th Round from Number One Contender to Number 45472, which was his inmate number, which, oh, wow, what a great title. That's so good. I love a good title. How clever. I, guess we, I just had chills saying it. Yes. I love a good title. Oh, I know you do. <laughs> Southwest of Salem. Oh, I can't oh, get over I still can't get over that one. That's a great, a great title. Great title. So good. Okay, let's say it again. The 16th round from number one contender to number 45472. So good. Chills again. Okay, so this was published and received widespread acclaim. And in that exact same year things start to turn around for Reuben and John. Of course it does, because anything, if anything gets them off, it's the media attention and the anger of, you know, concerned U.S. citizens for injustice Mm -hmm. in the justice system, Mm -hmm. which is just not right. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Good thoughts. (laughs) I don't know why I'm acting like an idiot today. (laughs) Same. I don't know. Not same about you, but me. No, I am pretty sure I've said more ridiculous things than you have so far. But still, media. Media. You're right. Alert the media. They'll help you. They will. So the same year that his book is published, 1974, the New York Times and the New Jersey Public Defender's Office separately obtain statements from Bellow and Bradley recanting their eyewitness testimonies. The Hmm. entire prosecution's case. I will remind you. Oh, yeah. So... That's over with, down the toilet. So both of them said that detectives pressured them to make false identifications because they wanted to convict Reuben. And as if this wasn't the most obvious thing ever, Bellow and Bradley say that they were offered leniency for the attempted burglary for their testimony against Reuben and John. I was going to ask you if they had done that, but I wanted to see if they did anything in the future, so I waited. Which is, why do we allow that? That's not, we shouldn't have that. It's bribery. It's horrible. definitely legal and it definitely shouldn't be. Yes. The amount of things that are illegal for detectives and for police officers to do to obtain information is bizarre. I agree. I think plea bargaining is such a weird process. Not even, I'm not even talking about plea bargaining, but just even even just just dangling something. They're like, well, we'll help you out if you tell us the truth or like... Yeah, or like you're if, allowed to fake information to scare people into telling you things. Like, yeah, or why is that yeah, a thing it's that's so bad. called coercion? Yes, and you can like offer people eyewitnesses. Like, there's like I don't even know what it's called. It happened during that trial of the U.S. Um, Navy SEAL recently. I don't know what you're talking about. You haven't heard but of this yet. Give me more information. The U.S. Navy SEAL who was um, up for trial because he the killed one who had... an ISIS insurgent by stabbing him in the neck. Oh, yeah. okay, okay, okay. That's not fucking cool, by the way. Yeah, don't don't stab anybody. Yeah, it's like, why did you do that? And he was under their protection, the ISIS kid. He was uh-huh. a teenager, and he was receiving medical care at the time. And two Navy SEALs came forward saying that their commander literally stabbed this kid in the neck a couple times, even though he already had a collapsed lung and was probably mm-hmm. going to die anyway. But for some reason, I do he remember stabbed that, yeah. him. And then the medic, who was one of their key eyewitnesses for the prosecution, like he went up on the stand and he had some sort of immunity where his witness statement 
like wouldn't get him in trouble or anything like that or something I don't something to that effect. They put it so much more poignantly when I, in the New York Times article, but I obviously cannot restate it with such effectiveness. But um there was something that they offered him and basically what the medic went up and said, he like recanted his statement not directly but indirectly he was like well I'm not really sure maybe I didn't really see it that way whatever and then he said I killed him I held my thumb over his breathing tube and because he had this level of immunity like he couldn't get in trouble for the the murder and then the stupid Navy SEAL guy went on Fox whatever and said oh the most important thing that I learned from that is loyalty and brotherhood. I'm like, you little shit. You told him to say those things because he had that that immunity. And so having him say that he was the one who killed him wouldn't affect anybody at all. And it, uh, military court is insane, you guys. It was just it is. so gross. Did you hear that episode, Crime Junkies episode, like two weeks ago? The one that Brit hosted fully? Mm-mm. It was so interesting. It involved military court, too, and it was like... Really? It also involved... I want to say it was like spousal immunity or something, some other form of immunity, too. And yeah. this guy just like kept having new trials and like all these bizarre things were happening. It was super interesting. It's so weird. And the other interesting thing about military trials are that the jury has like sole power over what the... Um, it's not bifurcated. Yeah, yeah. So they can basically say whatever punishment they want Mm -hmm. they have there's a limitation obviously like you can't i don't actually know what the limitation is so i'm not gonna guess but there's guidelines yeah there's guidelines and rules that you have to follow but they ultimately get to decide what the punishment is in addition to a guilty or not guilty charge it's weird and it's so complicated what was happening in this case that was on crime junkie i'm sure everyone's listened to it if they're listening to this but (laughs) um it had like a they finally were able to like like, they think that he was wrongfully convicted, and they were finally able to get him, like, free or whatever, mm-hmm. and then they retried him in military court because double jeopardy, or double, double jeopardy, double jeopardy, <laughs> I'm having a stroke. Yes. Um, double jeopardy doesn't apply to military to court. Military court. So don't join okay. the military. Yeah. Because <laughs> then they'll, well, okay. if, they, if you get wrongfully convicted and then freed, they can convict you there too. Well, how about this? Don't commit murder. Okay, well, this guy didn't. Ever. He was wrongfully convicted. Oh, yeah, that's true. And I don't think it was murder. I think, wow, this was like a week ago and I don't remember anything. Whatever. <laughs> Anyways, okay. Yeah, but anyway, that was one of the weird things that they can dangle in front of people is this weird immunity if you go on the stand. And then the the prosecution did this for this guy and then he like didn't say the correct thing. It's like, what the f- <laughs> Like, <laughs> he was like a key eyewitness. I guess he was I didn't trust- read the end of that story because I don't remember that part. I know yeah. like, what you're talking about, but I guess I have, I'm not up to date on it. I'll have to go yeah, read about that. Yeah, he was that. found like not guilty and the only thing he was found guilty of was of taking a picture with the dead body. Oh, yeah. And, like, indecency or something. That's and then, so weird. Yeah, and they let him, like, he, they basically just, like, brought him down a rank, but he is still in the Navy SEALs. So he's still going to be, I don't know if he's ever going to go um, overseas ever again, because I don't know how that works. But, like, I don't want someone like that in our military going and, like, murdering a teenager even after we've captured him and blew up everybody else who is around him. Like the threat has been neutralized. Let's put some more standards. Yeah, Just a little higher standards. Just than because that. he's an enemy of the state doesn't mean that you have the right to just fucking stab him in the neck. He didn't do anything. He's just a kid. 
and you already he's, he's a kid that was like brainwashed. Yes, that was brainwashed. He's just yeah into this institution. I don't care. I mean, he is. He's still a kid. Like it. Yeah. It's like have a little humanity, sir. Even if he was adult, an adult, that's still not okay. Yeah. Like that's not up to our military standards. Like I'm that, sorry. There's he's another episode. a prisoner of war at that point. Yeah. And you don't just murder your prisoners of war. What does that say about our standards as Americans who we so often demonize previous nations who have been unbelievably cruel to their prisoners, i.e. Hitler and the Japanese, and yet this is happening. It's well, disgusting. we are the biggest hypocrites in the world. So, yeah. That's America. It. America, the biggest hypocrites in, in the, the world. world. That should be our slogan. <laughs> it should be, honestly. That's all I have to say about that. Sorry. There's actually another, you reminded me of another episode of Crime Junkie. I've been listening to their old episodes because I have nothing to do. Yeah. Um, Like an older one that they did where it was like a couple different stories about women who are assaulted, sexually assaulted or raped in the military. And it's like a, oh all, my God. all of them are like covered up. Makes me want to cry Did you hear that, that episode? Shit. No, but I know oh, what you're talking go about. Go listen to it. It's so good. It's, yeah. it's kind of old. It's one of their older ones. But okay. Yeah, I've heard of that phenomenon before. It's really horrible. It is. Especially the women in the military. Mm-hmm. It's awful. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> Where were we? Oh, burglar, burglary. Oh, yeah. Weird, stupid things they dangle in front of yes. witnesses. Yes. <laughs> so, based on this new information, the recantations and the the knowing that they were offered leniency... The New Jersey Supreme Court overturned the convictions and granted them new trials or a new trial. They were their mm-hmm. co-defendants. Okay. So while they are out on bail wait, awaiting their new trial, this is when Bob Dylan writes the famous song Hurricane that I was beautifully singing to you. So good. And like an angel like voice. An, so good. <laughs> I should go on the voice or something. Yeah, you should. I'd hit the buzzer for you. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, Bob Dylan headlined two concerts, which the proceeds went to Reuben and John's defense team and their court costs and all these various things. And Joni Mitchell and Joan Baez also performed at two of the concerts and or at one of the two concerts. And the men also received support from Muhammad Ali, who attended one of their pretrial hearings. So they're getting quite a bit of nation wide attention and support from pretty much every civil rights activist, every liberal, like everyone's like, yes, mm-hmm. screw the man. Yes. Y'all are awesome. We love Let's you. Let's get you out. Yes. Then the second trial happens. So with that having occurred, okay. you would think that there's nothing to do at the trial for the prosecution because yeah, no. that was their entire case was was those two eyewitnesses Bello and Bradley and now they're saying they didn't see that so like what are they going to present like exactly. that's what every, everyone was like not worried like, about this is it a walk in the park yeah, but at the same time they were like well I wasn't worried about it the first time <laughs> so we'll see. yeah I'm oh now I'm worried yeah I mean I would ever I would like never trust in anything ever again oh god so they're like, well, what are they going to present in their case? And then they call Bello to the stand, who recanted his recantation. Is which that even a thing? I didn't know you could do. What? <laughs> Why would he have recanted in the first place? And then, okay, 
they dangled something in front of him again. Didn't I, they? I don't know what they did. I have oh, no answer for it this time. Oh my god! What the hell? What, but, okay, but it's only Bello this time. Only Bello, and he again places Reuben and John at the Lafayette Bar and Grill with guns in hand. Then. This new prosecution team, it's a new team of attorneys now. What did they do with the guns? Sorry. <laughs> they never produced the gun. Of course they didn't. And though And they arrested them on the same night, right? Yeah, well, they arrested they I don't know if they arrested him, but they took them in for the polygraph and the um lineup that wasn't a lineup, and then they let him go, remember? Yeah. So like where's the weapons? Where do they go? A good point. No, like, no one knows. <laughs> Yeah, they would have stashed them somewhere near or around the vicinity of where the shooting happened, or they would have been in the car. I hate this. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of the line from the song that's like, and though they couldn't produce the gun or something like that, Wait, the that actually a... was the one. Yeah. Oh, What's the line? Bob Dylan the, and I are on the yes, same you wavelength. And Bob, you and Dylan are We're the soulmates. Same. Okay. No. No? Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> So this new prosecution team brings one more thing to this trial that they didn't do in the first trial, and that is the original theory of the crime that the police had on that night, which was the racial revenge theory kind of thing, where the white guy shot the black guy at the tavern, so these black guys went and shot white guys at another tavern. How the hell would they have known that that occurred? This happened on the same night. It is like a small-ish town, so I mean, okay, okay. So we probably would have gotten would like I'm from a small town. I feel like I would have heard about that, but there's a reasonable assumption that they could have heard about it. Okay, they could have heard about it, especially if they were also out at, out and about or whatever mm-hmm. at local bars. Okay. Yeah, like okay. word, word could have gotten around, but there was no proof that John and Ruben knew this black tavern owner mm-hmm. or whatever. Was I they just with them. they just took the statements that he made in the Saturday evening post that he said he was misquoted. Oh, he's a militant, yes. And he's yep. like super violent and whatever. Right. And well, look, he's a boxer. It's his occupation to kill people, or not kill people, but, but almost be violent kill people. When he yeah, and so, I mean, it was just like a whole lot of propaganda is what it was. Okay, where am I? Sorry. <laughs> okay. I skipped ahead a lot. I'm so sorry. I, <laughs> okay. Okay, so this wasn't presented in the very first trial, and if I had to guess why it wasn't, it is probably because it makes no logical sense, and a judge would probably rule that it's more prejudicial than probative, which is a relevance rule where mm-hmm. you wouldn't allow something in that would preju- that would have more prejudicial value than actually moving a case along in any mm-hmm. way. Yeah. So it probably wouldn't have been allowed in, but... The prosecution team had really no other choice but to attempt to bring it up in this case because that's literally all they had. And so somehow they get it in. I don't really know how they got it in, but they did. Hmm. And the men were once again found guilty. What the hell? After all of this. (laughs) I... Ugh, the cases you talk about made me so angry. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. And it's good to talk about them. It's important. That's true. Anyway. And I believe that they were given the same sentences, but with the time served. So I think that they were just sent back and had to serve the remaining time of their sentences. But in 1981, John was released on parole because, remember, he's like model prisoner kind of guy. But Ruben is still chilling in prison, working on his appeals, 
reading, writing, researching, doing any everything and anything he can to get out because he knows he didn't do this and he knows that the system is working against him. Mm-hmm. So appeal after appeal is unsuccessful until 1985 when Judge H. Lee Sarokin, who was a district court judge at the time, but he later served as a judge in the Third Circuit, which is cool. Yes. Overturned the convictions. Yay! Ruling that the prosecutors, quote, fatally infected the trial yes. with the racially racial revenge theory that had no evidence behind it and that they had withheld evidence disproving Bellow's identifications, which is a Brady violation, which we talk about extensively in the a way ways back in mm-hmm. a while back in the Peggy Hattrick episode. If you're mm-hmm. curious about what that means in detail, basically it's unconstitutional. You can't do it. No. So those are his two reasons for ruling that the convictions be overturned. So Ruben is released and the charges were formally dropped in 1988, 22 years after they were filed. That is how old we are. Yeah. That is how long he spent fighting for his freedom before a judge finally saw through all the bullshit and took yeah. action. Like, the duration of our lives. It's yes. insane. Yeah. That's ridiculous. And although he was out on bail for part of that and he was released for part of that, that's still... That's still you're not nights free. that you're not sleeping because yeah. you're worried about your freedom. Yes. Disgusting. Have you... There's, like, this um, show on Netflix called The 13th. And it's yeah, about I've heard of that. Yeah, it's about how um, slavery is illegal in all forms except for the in the prison system, and it's how it's kind of like the loophole in the slavery Fourteenth Amendment deal, mm-hmm. and um, it says that all slavery is legal except for incarcerated prisoners. That's true. (laughs) Yeah, and there's a direct correlation as to why the majority of the population of incarcerated prisoners are black men. That's very true, yeah. Yeah. So, I've always found that. It's called The 13th as a documentary? Yeah. Cool, I'll have to go watch that. Yeah. Did I say 14th or 13th Amendment? You said it's called The 13th. 14th is equal rights, but yeah. The 13th. You're good. Yes. (laughs) I know what you meant. Yeah. Okay, so in 1999, a wonderful movie, wonderful movie detailing Ruben's life came out called The Hurricane, starring Denzel. I love Denzel Washington. Who doesn't? He's the man. He is. And, okay, there's a quote from the movie that I don't know if this is a quote in real life, but I hope it is, where he says, hate put me in prison, but love's going to bust me out. And it makes me want to cry. That's so... Oh, you know. oh, my gosh. Okay, more things that'll make us want to cry. Oh, God. In 2004, Ruben founded Innocence International, which is a nonprofit that works to free wrongfully convicted prisoners. And it's kind of like the Innocence Project, but with like a little bit less emphasis on DNA. The Innocence Project is solely about DNA. Mm-hmm. And John, his co-defendant, joined the organization as well. And in 2011, Ruben published another autobiography titled Eye of the Hurricane, My Path from Darkness to Freedom, which best title award. Oh, my God. So good. So (laughs) creative. it includes a foreword by Nelson Mandela, (gasps) who also spent a significant 
part um, of his life in prison. In prison. Oh, my God. I want Nelson Mandela to write my introduction to my autobiography. If he was... A He's lo- dead now. I was just about to say that, <laughs> but I messed up the word autobiography, and I was more worried about that. Oh, my God. We cannot talk today. Both of us are having Clearly weird not. talking moments. Not great. It's not good. We have three episodes to I get. know. It's fine. Whatever. It's cool. We can sound however we want. It is our podcast. Yes. Okay. On April 20th, 420, um, <laughs> Claire peed on my carpet on 420. I did not! Okay. We're going to break this down for y'all. Did not pee. She did. I didn't. None of us actually know? No. no we don't know. We d- Okay. She could have. I don't think I did. I was hallucinating a bit because uh, I had some some stuff that I don't know exactly what was in it <laughs> but I ate it anyway and um, yeah I thought I peed on Randy's carpet <laughs> she left and then I left she well, just okay. stood up and walked out no, of wait, my okay. front door I had been thinking about it for what felt like three hours but it was probably 20 minutes and you weren't there for 20 minutes you were there for like was you I came... not there for 20 minutes no. you came into my house you sat down, you looked confused, you got up and you left. No. Yes. No, I went to the bathroom at one point. Were you? I did. No. <laughs> I Okay, because I was worried about the carpet. And I was like, oh my God. I thought I had peed my pants and I went into the bathroom <laughs> to check. I didn't. I didn't. I did solidify that in the bathroom. But when I came back out and sat back down, I was like, am I sure of that? <laughs> and then our friend Evan was leaving, and so I was like, this is my ticket. <laughs> I should leave. Out. And I was like, I have to go. <laughs> and then I had to tell my body how to work. Goodbye. It was so terrifying, you guys. Ugh. It was the worst. So but funny. no, I didn't pee on Randy's carpet. We don't know that. Why are we trusting your I don't account know. of the night? Your car- That carpet is still in your house. I know, but I mean, you should... it would have dried by now. That was a long time ago. <laughs> Not talking about it being wet or dry. <laughs> but oh wait, no. Ringo is absolutely probably Ringo's vomited on vomited that probably all same area. forms of bodily fluids of his. He's a cat, by the way. <laughs> Not a person. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Ringo Starr lives in Randy's apartment. Yes. Just kidding. No, he doesn't. Um but yeah. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> it's Why like a dark we... colored carpet, so I wouldn't have seen it. That's true. And it probably would have dried by morning. So But I'm pretty sure we I didn't. don't we don't know. We don't know. I confirmed with myself in the bathroom. I checked. You I did. Don't know what was happening no, that I night. Don't. So I don't believe you. The speculation. Who knows? Objection. Who knows what I did? Objection. <laughs> lack of personal knowledge. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> rule 602, I think. I think I know the rule for that. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh my god. Wow. Well, okay, so well, we may never know. A non-funny thing that happened on 420 yeah. in 2014, Carter died from prostate cancer. Oh. I don't know why I'm laughing. It's just, yeah. It's like, went That's south. not a great way to die, Randy. Like, come on. <laughs> we'll never get prostate cancer. We'll never know. That's true. Um, But he was 76, and that's not too old, but at least no. it's not. Too, too young. That's but over the average life expectancy for a male in the United States, which is 72. Yes, and black men have even shorter less. life expect- expectancies. And he did a lot with the time that he wasn't imprisoned, so. I think it's 72. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's 72. But to leave us on a happy note. Okay. 
Another great quote. He's just full of great quotes. Oh, my God. This man is just full of great knowledge and wording and everything. He should just... He's a poet. Yes. And he didn't even know it. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Okay. So he said, in regards to the wrongful conviction, he said, there is no bitterness. If I was bitter, that would mean they won. Oh, yes. Sweet, sweet angel hurricane man. <laughs> you are correct. Forgiveness and moving on yes, and, and growth. doing good stuff. Like you're supposed to do and because just channeling we're... feelings into yes. productive things, which he good. did his whole life. It's healthy. That's what you should do. <laughs> Don't stew in your own anger. Like that was the story of the hurricane. The and that the was the song. You... <laughs> Those were all of the lyrics Those were to all the lyrics. Bob Dylan's song. I just um, read them to you. <laughs> yep. Without singing. And I was singing the duet. She was. That's was. like a later version. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Christopherson updated... came in yes. and did oh, a duet. Oh my God. <laughs> God bless Chris Christopherson. Yes. Okay. So I've always wanted to be him. So I guess, no, I haven't. But I guess I just emulated him through this podcast. You did. So thanks, guys, for listening. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> thanks for thanks listening. For listening. <laughs> Bye. Bye.